Hello and welcome to the Poplar Tapes. This is the third part in a three-part series that we're doing entitled uh, There's Nothing Wrong With Counting. And uh, this section is on surveillance and subject formation. So we would really encourage you to go back and listen to the first two uh, sections of this series in order to get the full context for what we're talking about. But if you don't want to do that, that's fine. And this conversation should be able to stand on its own and hopefully you can get something out of it. Um, yeah, but my name is Keegan Irish. And uh, my name is Alex Bose. Awesome. This is the Poplar Tapes. It's a podcast uh, about philosophy and politics. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a kind of collage of conversations and discourses uh, that are happening in the public sphere. And uh, we're just trying to create a kind of record of some of the cultural, social, and political issues uh, that we're facing today. As Keegan just mentioned, uh, we're interested in the intersections uh, between philosophy and politics. And we're hoping to take uh, some of the themes, events, and ideas that we discuss on the podcast and use them to help us understand our current historical moment. And uh, we would ask you guys to follow us on Twitter, if you would like, at The Popular Tapes. And other than that, let's uh, get right down to it. This brings us into our third subject that we wanted to cover, which is um, surveillance and subject formation. So what we mean by that is what kinds of people are we becoming in a world where our actions are surveilled and quantified in these very specific ways and then the environment that we live in is altered in order to elicit certain reactions from us, right? Because this really is the... Um, <clears throat> And the crux of the matter is the yeah. goal is the crux of the matter. Yeah. But is also the goal of this kind of behavioral science and this kind of conditioning um, is to alter a human being's environment, which will elicit different responses from them. Right. So. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, uh, yeah, data profiling, um, as, as we've mentioned, you know, can be traced back to behavior behavioral science, but also cybernetics. And, you know, cybernetics is associated with theories of, yeah, in, essentially instrumental conditioning. Um, and those theories were elaborated by behaviorists in roughly the 40s. And uh, it, it perceives the human as an organism that reacts to stimuli in the environment. Um, and, and so, yeah, cybernetics theory... Uh, believes that behavior can be shaped by altering an environment. I mean, when we think about that kind of manipulation, uh, uh, we can already see how it exists in built built environments. A good example is just the grocery store. Uh, you know, if you if you go to the cash register, you you usually see these racks that are filled with you know candies and magazines and other miscellaneous items. And uh, those those are essentially meant to encourage unplanned purchases or impulse buys. So those could be an example of, you know, the, these racks are basically the pre the the racks and you know all of the things on them are uh, essentially these preconditions that are set up in the environment of the grocery store 
and that increase the potential for the act of making an impulse purchase, right? So it's it's a pre- exactly. precondition that enables a specific kind of behavior uh, to occur and um, and increases the potential for it to happen. Yeah, it increases the probability, the likelihood of that behavior being carried out um, by structurally altering the environment to encourage that kind of behavior. And so when you think about the fact that like this social mass media today is our environment, uh, it represents the environment in which we live and that it is centrally controlled uh, in this very kind of severe way. Um, you know, power can be exercised by uh, manipulating the environment and altering it, altering it, um, altering the environment in which people feel that they're responsible for their own actions. But they will be encouraged, incentivized to act in particular ways that these kind of social planners are interested in. So there's really like a, a, a conflict between. Um, the liberal, the kind of classical liberal sense of who the human being is and what the cybernetic hypothesis says about who the the human being is, right? So in the liberal hypothesis, the idea is that people improve themselves by exercising their reason and their moral moral faculties, um, which are developed through reflection and education, right? But... Uh, yeah, and so through this, they, they become free. But the cybernetic hypothesis, um, as you mentioned, sees human beings as analogous to plants or uh, machines or animals, maybe, uh, where human beings are organisms, mechanisms that are only responsive to their, uh, their environment, <laughs> to stimuli from their environment. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's an extremely reductive way of looking at the human being. Right. And and, uh, reductive and mechanistic uh, representation of the human being. And Mm -hmm. I mean, it shows you how I mean, you're not really conscious of it when you're surfing the Web. But when you are surfing the Web Mm -hmm. and you're you're sharing content or, you know, liking content or responding to content, um, or navigating the internet using any platform that exists that builds data profiles, you're essentially in a dehumanizing, like a dehumanizing relationship, right? With these, with these platforms. I mean, like these particular things are like constantly dehumanizing you, and like you're not even like really aware. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, and so they import in an important sense, they strip you of uh, your agency, right? Because um, these programs increasingly condition the possibilities for action. And I think that that is a, a really important point. And so there's an imbalance between the people who operate um, these kind of social media platforms that we use and the people who actually use them. And people just become accustomed to the fact that they don't have any kind of say in the way that those platforms are set up and the way that they are changed on a day-to-day basis and the way that the data that's collected through them is manipulated. You know, you're completely alienated from that in your everyday life, even as, you know, every day you use this social mass media. So it, again, 
similar to what we were talking about in the case of markets, like enshrines this unequal social um, social order in the physical and then increasingly personal infrastructure of our lives. So that kind of brings me to another point that I wanted to make, which is that there's a what I'm going to call a Foucauldian element to this, um, where when human beings are treated in this kind of dehumanized way and they're treated as a black box from the perspective of the data scientist uh, and the behavior scientist who is really only interested in their uh, behavioral output, you know, their internal motivations, their inner life is not important. It's not valued, right? And people, I think, really take this on and internalize this idea about what it is to be a person. And they view their own value increasingly on the basis of what they can output as data, what they can output and generate in terms of engagement um, in social media. And so in this way, you become an actor uh, in your own dehumanization and your own alienation from uh, who you might be interested in becoming or who you are besides your uh, what can be quantified in data output, you know, which as we've kind of pointed out is a very narrow like nihilistic dehumanized yeah. nihilistic portrait of like what the human being is, right? It's not very holistic. And yet more and more people take this on very personally and weigh, think about themselves and their value on the basis of the degree to which they can output those uh, those kind of data. Absolutely, and and uh, on on that one level, there's uh, the internalization of this this kind of uh, mode of relating to the self and the quantified self and and uh, the uh, the environments that are shaping that, but also. Major uh, companies, uh, especially ones in Montreal, like CGI, are involved in the kind of research and development of uh, technologies and, uh, you know, AI that will be involved in the eventual arrival, if, you know, if it does happen, uh, of Web 3.0, right, which is, you know, the Internet of Things, and the smart home and smart city and those things. Uh, I mean, Young Chul Han put it really well. Is you know they're they're basically bringing digital con- control society to completion, and uh, and the smart home and the smart city are meant to make the Internet of Things essentially all pervasive uh, from the domestic space to the public space. All of the gadgets that are involved in that are uh, they're equipped with like these sensors that allow them to communicate into like an electronic communication network and essentially data collection becomes kind of like omnipresent, you know, and like every everything you do is like supposed to be recordable right your your mattress your fucking car your coffee maker your shower yeah. your fucking toothbrush like <laughs> <laughs> 
you guys seen this? You've seen this brilliant uh, smart pipe piece by Adult Swim? No, no, I haven't. <laughs> okay, so it's like a data quantification thing for your shit, and there's a whole social media attached <laughs> to it. <laughs> you gotta. It, it's a hilarious. Uh, it's a hilarious satire of this phenomenon. Yeah, no. So I think that I think that you're right that uh, as um, as the Internet of Things has developed. Uh, the the sphere of information really does enclose the subject and the human body in a new way and a way that is, you know, really threatening. And so especially it's interesting to watch the way that these new technologies are being implemented, like things like the smart home and the smart city, because often people are just kind of wowed by the novelty and so that makes me think of um, Marshall McLuhan. And Marshall McLuhan talks about the way that uh, when new electric technologies are installed into societies, um, it takes like it's an enormous amount of social surgery, he calls it, that has to take place to install this into the body of the society. And uh, he says that new technologies have a narcotic or an anesthetic effect. Right. And you can see this happening with the kind of smart home and the smart city thing where the, the novelty of the tech um, kind of numbs you to the fact that it is fundamentally changing our um, our social environment. So McLuhan thinks that, um, yeah, he thinks that uh, electric technology is directly related to the human being's uh, central nervous system. And what he means by this is that it is an extension of our bodies insofar as it is the way that we experience the world. And it's the central way. Um, so I think that is really interesting. And he has this – and so he talks about the way that our senses are um, caught up in these new forms of electric technology. And he has this brilliant quote that I'd like to read that I think really hammers home this point that we've been making um, about the kinds of social effects that these new electric technologies says uh, – sorry, the kind of social effects that these new electric technologies will have. Um, and so McLuhan says, quote, once we have surrendered our senses and nervous systems to the private manipulation of those who would try to benefit from taking a lease on our eyes and ears and nerves, we don't really have any rights left. Yeah, that's a, that's a great quote. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, that's. I think this is bang on to point to the fact that there is a new social order that has been installed. There has been massive social sur- uh, surgery that has taken place to install this electric technology in our society. And so there are forms left over from the old model of like a representative, democratic, uh, liberal society. And the language continues to be used, but in substance, that order no longer functions in a meaningful sense, right? Uh, there is a new order in place, and it is this uh, technocratic um, way of ordering society. In yeah. w- authoritarian, it's highly, it's yeah, it's highly anti-democratic, highly authoritarian, right? Very centralized forms of control. Um, so these are things. 
these are the kind of material conditions that we need to take seriously if we want to talk about politics um, in our day and age. And so I didn't want to end on such a kind of bleak note to say that like we now live in this new dystopian society. Yeah, yeah it's because yeah. it is a dystopian nightmare. Yeah. And I think that we should be like candid about that. Definitely. But on the other hand, there are some very interesting developments that come along with it um, that are worth pointing out. And one of those things is actually precisely the contradiction between this new um, authoritarian uh, technical order and the outward ideological um, discourse about what West our Western societies are, where they're still viewed as being representative liberal democracies that respect um, human rights and that you have, um, you know, for, in Canada and you have like certain constitutional freedoms and there's, you know, the code of human rights and so on that need to be respected. So there's a contradiction, right? There's a tension between those two elements that even someone from like just a kind of traditionally, I think liberalism often in our society is just like the default starting point for how people view politics. And even from that kind of default liberal perspective that you're inculcated with, um, you can see these contradictions on the face of them once you start paying attention to how the systems operate you know if you make yourself aware of the way in which these technical systems operate you can blatantly see the contradictions with the way that our society um talks about itself and describes itself as being democratic as being free as respecting human rights like those contradictions come into the open pretty easily and so uh, a good example of this was uh, Edward Snowden, right, who worked for the CIA. And so he's involved with this kind of mass surveillance, uh, this mass collection of data, manipulation of data. And uh, this is exactly what happened to him. He saw the contradiction between his own kind of values, which were to uphold the Constitution of the United States. And you might say, well, like, that's not a particularly good starting point, And fair enough, you know. But... Nonetheless, even from that perspective, he was able to see, hey, like, I am not doing that at all. Like, I'm blatantly violating the constitutional rights of these people. And then he was able to release this data um, because he encountered that moral quandary within himself, you know, which is precisely the kind of thing that these technologies of uh, behavior and so on are not interested in like a moral quandary within yourself. Like when you encounter that experience, you know, and you, it can't be quantified and all of a sudden you act in a way that um, when you act in a way that can't be predicted in advance as a result of something internal, um, that's exactly the kind of condition that gets set up by the society we're in now is the possibility for those kind of actions that it will never be able to predict precisely because they break from that, the, the normalcy of behavior. Like a lot of the, the people that are involved in this kind of industry, especially if they're working on AI or building algorithms that, you know, make drones have more precise aim, you know, or something like this. Like, you know, it's just like, how do you not, yeah. how are you not reflecting about this and being like, oh, like I'm helping like our country, like kill people, like families. Like, yeah. But with unmanned, with unmanned aircraft that are, yeah, yeah just, like where's the moral compunction yeah, there? Yeah. Like where is your com moral compass at, yeah, right? Yeah. That you're willing to do that kind of work. 
growing up in these kinds of conditions almost like generates like the perfect kind of labor force for also continuing to do this like horrible shit. So it's almost like to resist, like your goal becomes something like the cultivation of yourself as the kind of person who wouldn't fucking do that, you know, (laughs) who wouldn't go to work at one of these places. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like also the cultivation of this, idea of acting in a such a way that it isn't predictable by an algorithm by or by data and behavioral science you know like mess up your your data um don't be as predictable as they would like you know don't always go to the same places consider going somewhere else yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) yeah switch it up cultivate a different way of kind of being in the world other than the one which is obviously being marketed to you uh and kind of spoon-fed to you day to day and that takes a conscious takes conscious yeah exactly and i mean yeah like one of the one of the initial steps here is yeah becoming more conscious of these things you know uh being able to Mm -hmm. distance yourself right because we're we're so we're so immersed in it that it's you know it's sometimes yeah it's just kind of hard to like try and make it more meta and be like oh okay yeah, yeah. This is what I'm- look at it abstractly. Exactly. When you are, you we are, you know, we're of this generation. We are the subjects who were bred through social media, you know, where we are those kind of people who have been cultivated by these systems. And so it's, yeah, it's difficult to take a step back from your own self and kind of try and take this philosophical look um, at how these systems are informing who you are. I think that's especially true. Like that's always hard. It doesn't matter what kind of social system you're talking about, but I think it's especially true in the case of social media where people's self image and, um, the way that they value themselves is so bound up with how they are seen and engaged with online. It can be especially difficult to kind of pull yourself back from that and say like there are other ways that I can determine value in myself like life affirming I can find myself that exactly I can affirm my life in other ways that's really hard thing to do but uh it's worth doing yeah absolutely absolutely yeah or something like this (laughs) (laughs) um uh there there was this uh this great quote that I found from Jacobin uh, and they're kind of trying to talk about like the emancipatory potential of big data. And they say, uh, you know, so the same data and algorithms that are used, you know, to create scheduling software, like this Mm -hmm. kind of data could be repurposed, you know, to improve workers' lives rather than destroy them. Right. Yeah. And, uh, it says uh, worker cooperatives or strong radical unions could use the same algorithms to maximize workers' well-being. They could use the data mm-hmm. on sales trends, preferences, and whether to staff generously during peak hours so that workers get adequate breaks and work at a more reasonable pace. It's simply a matter of changing what is optimized by the statistical procedure. Instead of optimizing a mathematical function that measures corporate profitability, the function could be changed mm-hmm. to reflect workers' wel- welfare. Right, so it's like exactly. reva- like like we need to have like revaluation and like re mm-hmm. you know just like yeah we have to recontextualize these things so yeah yeah because yeah, I mean like we're saying like algorithmic technology and advanced computing it's here to stay it's not going away 
There's no point in imagining we can return to another time. But the way that it's organized and the way that it's directed, that's something that we should be thinking about. You know, we should be thinking about how can we have a say in the way that the as how can we have a say as like the demos, as the people in general, um, as a public, right? How can we bring this stuff into the public sphere, make it relevant and important to uh, political conversation and reorient the way that these technologies are developed. Because right now it is extremely anti-democratic and it is hurting us. Yeah. You know? yeah. And it, you know, it's, it's, yeah. uh, it's unpromising. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, ha- it makes a kind of claim on the future as well. Right. Which is what politics is about, right? Politics is about how do we live together into a new kind of future? And as the people, you don't want to hand that over to the ones who own this digital infrastructure um, because they're going to make us miserable. Yeah. And so with that, we have reached the end of the final part of our series, There Is Nothing Wrong With Counting. Uh, We hope that you guys enjoyed it and that you got a lot out of it. We certainly had a lot of fun making it and a lot of fun researching these topics and kind of figuring out how best to uh, present them because there's a lot of really uh, dense uh, subject matter here. If you'd like to hear more about a specific idea or you're interested in the kind of research that we were doing here, please do let us know because we would like to kind of get some feedback and keep doing this kind of research if it's something that people are interested in. And as well, uh, we're going to post in our show notes um, some of the articles and books that we were looking at to make this episode. So I would just ask you guys to uh, follow us on Twitter, if you'd like, at The Poplar Tapes. But uh, moreover, I would just like to say thank you for listening and for kind of giving us a chance to explore these ideas. And yeah, thanks a lot.